to another episode of the Slam Fast Podcast, where we bring the premier rock concert pre-gaming experience from the parking lot to the podcasting airwaves. I'm Brad. So back on episode 58, I was lucky enough to have the infamous Sonny Pooney on the podcast to cover the first leg of the Kiss Farewell Tour. Thanks again, Sonny. So that tour had subsequent legs to it, and this episode is going to revolve around... The Kiss Farewell Tour shows I saw on September 6th of 2000 at the Breslin Center in East Lansing, Michigan. And on September 12th, Pine Knob Music Theater, Clarkston, Michigan. So again, not much had changed from the Kiss show over the course of that tour. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about Kiss. So I'm going to mix it up a little bit with regards to the Band on the Bill Spotlight, and we will get into that here shortly. So since the farewell tour shows that I saw in May of 2000, once in Grand Rapids and once in Auburn Hills, Michigan, I did attend the 7th Annual Detroit Kiss Expo on August 6th of 2000 at the Ramada Inn in Romulus, Michigan, which is right near Detroit Metro Airport. So that was actually a few days after the the ACDC Stiff Upper Lip tour that my brother and I saw at the Palace of Auburn Hills, which also included Slash's Snake Pit. And we did an episode on that back on episode 60 with Matt and Mike. So I don't remember a ton about this 7th Annual Detroit Kiss Expo. I I do know that the tribute band Detroit Rock City, which is local to Detroit, played there, but (laughs) I'm having a hard time remembering who the guest was. I'm just drawing a complete blank and going back into uh, some of my photos. I don't see any (laughs) photos from that, so unfortunately not, uh, not very memorable. But so at some point... After those first two farewell tour shows that I saw, I remember talking to Holly's mom and obviously thinking, quote-unquote, that this was the end, right? That this was the farewell tour and had asked her if she had any interest in attending a KISS show. So if you remember back to me describing how I asked Holly after we had met if she would ever consider going to a show... And I covered this back on episode 33, which was the recap of the official KISS convention tour stop in Detroit, Michigan. And so that was kind of an introduction uh, for her to to KISS. And I, I can remember a couple months into our relationship, I asked her if she would ever go <laughs> to a show with me. And her response was, only if they reunite with the original members and put the makeup on. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! And of course, in my head, I'm like, great. So that's, she's never going to see a show because that's never going to happen. So interestingly enough, her mom's response to that was very similar and there was a caveat that said she would only go if they actually came to the Lansing East Lansing metro area so you're telling me there's a chance 
yeah! So I said, you got a deal. So I thought, let me look back and see how many times they've actually played in the Lansing, East Lansing area and see what are the chances of this happening. So they played a club called The Brewery, which became a Silver Dollar Saloon, and I covered some of the uh, Lansing, East Lansing venues and concert history back when I talked about that Michigan Fest show that I saw with Hootie and the Blowfish. So they played the brewery October 21st and October 22nd of 1974, and those shows were right before the Hotter Than Hell album actually came out, and there's a great bootleg of one of those shows, and you can find it on YouTube, and it's it's interesting to listen to. And then they played a place called Metro Ice Arena on April 29th, 1975, on the Dress to Kill tour, which again was right before they played the infamous show at Cobo Hall. And then they played the Lansing Civic Center March 22nd, 1985, on the Animalize tour with Wasp opening. Uh-oh. So this is... <laughs> that's it. So they hadn't played here in 25 years, and I'm thinking, all right, well, this is not likely going to happen. And then sometime in late June of 2000, I believe, and maybe I saw it online first, I've still got the uh, concert ad clipping out of the Lansing State Journal, and sure enough, they were coming to the Breslin Center on Michigan State's campus, where Michigan State basketball plays their games. So then we contacted Holly's parents and told them that they were coming, and sure enough, we got four tickets to go to that show. And then sometime leading up to, I want to say this was kind of thrown on last minute, but they, uh, they added the show at Pine Knob Music Theater over in Clarkston, Michigan, uh, later on in the summer, and ended up getting tickets to that, and again went with my friend Tom, who I worked with, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Another interesting piece of this, and this plays into how I'm handling the band on the Bill Spotlight for this episode. So although Nugent was initially advertised for the East Lansing show, it, it's interesting to note that Nugent wasn't on either one of these two Michigan shows, which was really odd because he was on the tour leading up to that, and he was on the tour after that until they hit some Canadian dates there towards the end of September, and then he also didn't play the last nine U.S. dates. So who knows why he missed these two Michigan dates. Maybe he was, since he was back home, again, he had a ranch down in Jackson, Michigan, which is 30 minutes south of Lansing, and maybe he had some things that he needed to take care of and taking a break. So a band called The Beautiful People actually opened both of those shows. Skid Row played after them. So that was kind of unique, you know, that we didn't, uh, we didn't get the full triple bill on those two dates. So leading up to the show, I was excited to be going to KISS with somebody that hadn't seen them before. I think that's always fun for, for KISS fans to, uh, to go to KISS or take somebody to a KISS show that has never seen it and kind of see uh, their reaction to it. I remember uh, burning a CD 
with the concert set list on it for her parents to listen to. <laughs> Whether or not they actually listened to it, I have no idea. But I wanted to at least give them the set list and so they can could be prepared for the songs. Because I always think, you know, going to something, going to a show, not necessarily knowing the songs and, you know, at the volume that that stuff's at, it's kind of hard to, to make out some of the things. So I made that uh, CD for them. So the day of the show, I can remember, I didn't work too far away from there. And I remember at lunch, I drove over there and took pictures with, I, I think at that point, you know, I must have had a flip phone of some sort, which obviously had primitive uh, camera on it. They had a little uh, marquee thing uh, near the Breslin Center that would flash through, you know, the events coming up. And sure enough, the KISS uh, logo popped up there, and I know I took some pictures, but <laughs> who knows where that stuff is. So the other interesting thing is, so this venue was on Michigan State's campus, which is a dry campus, except during Michigan State home football games. So that was a little bit odd, going to a show um, and not, uh, not being able to purchase uh, any beer uh, or alcohol at all at the show. So I remember getting into the venue, and of course I purchased one of the uh, event t-shirts for this show, which again had the uh, those other uh, you know four dates listed um, on the back when they had played the Lansing, East Lansing area, which was cool. But so I remember sitting there, and I think actually we got into the venue and I think Skid Row was already playing which I know my in-laws were not uh, interested in at all and were not fans of at all but their set list was Riot Act, Piece of Me, Making a Mess, 18 in Life, Monkey Business, I Remember You, and Youth Gone Wild. So five songs off of the debut, two songs off of Slave to the Grind, zero songs off of Beside Ourselves, and zero songs off of Subhuman Race. Again, they did not change anything, which was a little surprising. I, I would have thought that Skid Row might have mixed their set list up a little bit over the course of this tour, but this was exactly the same as what I saw back in May. So as we were sitting there waiting until Kiss came on, I can remember... <laughs> Sitting there, and again, Holly's dad is a mechanical engineer. So I know, you know, we were sitting there, and like I had mentioned, it's fun to take somebody that has not seen Kiss before and kind of see their reaction to some of the special effects and all that type of stuff. So we're sitting there waiting for Kiss to come on, and <laughs> he points out two things, which, so Paul's flying stunt, that's not too surprising. You know, that somebody would, would point that out as you've got the, the truss that comes out from the stage and, you know, you could see the pulley system in there and and made the comment that, you know, so somebody's going to come out to the center of the arena. So sure enough, that uh, uh, was spoiled. But then when he noticed the pulley system at the top of the lighting rig that was going to lift Gene Simmons and he made a comment... <laughs> to me insane so then I see it looks like somebody's gonna get lifted up to the top of the uh, 
the lighting rig and I was just like, oh gosh. And I can still remember just Holly laughing at that, that her dad had pointed that stuff out, obviously, before it had happened. So then Kiss comes on, set list, Detroit Rock City, Deuce, Shout It Out Loud, I Love It Loud, Shock Me, Firehouse, Do You Love Me, Calling Dr. Love, Heaven's On Fire, Let Me Go Rock and Roll, 2000 Man, Psycho Circus, Lick It Up, God of Thunder, Cold Gin, 100,000 Years, Love Gun, and then close the regular set with Black Diamond, and then Encore Beth, and Rock and Roll All Night. So again, five songs off of the debut, one song off of Hotter Than Hell, one song off of Dress to Kill, five songs off of Destroyer, one song off of Rock and Roll Over, two songs off of Love Gun, one song off of Dynasty, zero songs off of Unmasked, one song off of Creatures of the Night, one song off of Lick It Up, one song off of Animalize, and one song off of Psycho Circus. So again, I mentioned there wasn't really anything that changed here, but you know they did swap the uh, set list spots between Calling Dr. Love and Psycho Circus. Not really sure why that would be. And then on these two shows, I recall that Paul kind of mixed up the vocal delivery a little bit uh, during the second verse of Psycho Circus, which I thought was actually very, very cool. Again, I snuck in the trusty recorder and bootlegged the show, and it came out okay. As again, it was fun to have that show recorded as it took place in our hometown. So real quickly, there was a review in the Lansing State Journal the next day. Headline, Kiss Pleases Faithful Followers at Breslin. So just a couple things. Blood erupted from Simmons' mouth during the song Love Gun. 
hurling three rows into the crowd. So obviously a couple things wrong with that statement. He didn't uh, didn't spit blood during Love Gun, and it did not go three rows into the crowd. And then it says Tara Petlovsky, manager in sales and marketing for Breslin, said the attendance account reached nearly 6,000. So my recollection of that was the upper bowl was completely empty. And for some odd reason, I know they've got the, uh, I know they've got the curtains uh, in that venue. I'm not sure why they didn't curtain that stuff off. Um, but the lower bowl was, was pretty full and the floor was full as well. Again, it was cool to see them in my hometown because I never, over the course of my life, I have not really seen them before in the town that I was living. So that was an added bonus. And then the Pine Knob show was obviously great. Again, it was, I think, the first time they had ever played that venue, which was fun to go to. And I'll talk a little bit more about the pre-gaming during the Slam Fest tip of the week. So now on to the Band on the Bill Spotlight. So back on that episode where I had Sonny on and we talked about the first leg of the Kiss Farewell tour, we dove into some of Skid Row's material during that Band on the Bill Spotlight. And I did that by design because I know Sonny is more of a Skid Row fan than he is a Ted Nugent fan. So that made sense to me. But now I'm sitting here with these two shows that I saw of the Farewell Tour. And I was thinking, well, what am I going to do? So I'm going to bend the rules. I'm not exactly bending the rules. I guess I'm making the rules. And I can do that because this is my show. So I'm going to go back and focus on some of Ted Nugent's material. Now the easy thing to do would be to dive into his 70s heyday stuff and and go through some of that which most people are familiar with but that's not what I always like to do on this show so instead I'm going to dive into Ted Nugent's material from the 1980s post Scream Dream so I think this era is overlooked and it's obviously ignored by Ted Nugent because he does not play anything from this era. He basically acts like it never happened. And what's even worse is if you look up Ted Nugent and you go to his Wikipedia page and go down into that history section, here's the Wikipedia blurb for this period. During the period of 1982 to 1989, Nugent released a series of solo albums to declining critical favor and commercial performance, and also began assuming a more prominent role as lead vocalist. So that's, that's it. It doesn't even mention the albums by name. It doesn't talk about the songs or the singers that he brought in and, or any of that stuff. It, it then goes into, in 1989, he joined the supergroup Damn Yankees. So just completely overlooked and ignored. So the albums that I am talking about is Nugent, Penetrator, Little Miss Dangerous, and if you can't lick them, lick them. So I'm going to rank these from four to one. And so starting with number four, 
The album Nugent was released August of 1982, produced by Ted Nugent, reached number 51 on the charts, and is not certified. So again, you noticed I just said August of 82 because there is not a specific release date for any of these albums from the 80s. So all songs on this album were written by Ted Nugent. So notable musicians on here. So he brought back Derek St. Holmes, rhythm guitar and lead vocals. And then Carmine Apice was actually on the drums. So getting into this album, and again, I'm not going to go through every song, but I'm just going to go through some highlights. So again, I think this was his attempt to kind of reach back to his 70s heyday, obviously bringing back Derek St. Holmes and then bringing a kick-ass drummer into the fold like Carmine Apice. So the album kicks off with a song called No, 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 and you got Derek St. Holmes on lead vocal. This is a great song. Old school Nugent, great riff. Uh, Derek St. Holmes sounds great. And there's some great Carmine fills during the outro of the song. And it's funny looking at the title of No, No, No. So obviously Kiss had a a song titled No, No, No off of Crazy Nights. And I would say that Nugent's No, No, No is better than Kiss's No, No, No. Habitual Offender is on here, and it was technically the first single. So again, Derek St. Holmes uh, lead vocal. Good song. Actually, it's to me, it sounds like, and there's some, some melody in there, but it sounds like the Foreigner song, Headknocker, from their debut album. Which again, makes sense if in 1982, Ted is trying to reach back <laughs> into the 70s. And then the last track on side one, Good and Ready. Again, Derek St. Holmes on lead vocal. Good song. Starts off with the backing vocals uh, with Good and Ready. Has the Cat Scratch Fever riff. Even that lead fill at the beginning. And then the chorus vibe is just (laughs) Cat Scratch Fever. And the soloing, I mean, it's the same. It's like the same fills. Uh, The breakdown, I'm good and ready. Past the ammunition, not sure what the hell that means Um, but overall a good song and then on side two there's a song called ebony that kicks off the side cool little jam she's my ebony verse harmonies are really really good during that song again it's sung by Derek st holmes can't stop me now also Derek st holmes on lead vocal upbeat again another cool little jam Chorus, don't waste my time, and then later on, don't waste your time. You can't stop me now, and there's some underlying piano in there. Harmonies are good, and there's a great, great ending to that song. And then the last track on the album, titled Tail Gunner, Derek St. Holmes on lead vocal again. Good song, cool mid-tempo riff and vibe. The verse sounds like the David Essex song, Rock On. And then there's kind of a weird (laughs) talking vocal towards the end not sure if that's Nuge on there and there's kind of a a laugh at the end not really sure what's going on there so again the songs with Derek St. Holmes on lead vocal for the most part are solid I'm a fan of of all of those but the four songs Bound and Gagged Fighting Words Don't Push Me and We're Gonna Rock Tonight that have Ted on lead vocal are all subpar as far as I'm concerned. So again, 
just uh, just with some of those highlights on there, that's why this comes in at number four for me. Number three, I went with If You Can't Lick Em, Lick Em. So released February of 1988, produced by Tom Worman, Dwayne Barron, John Purdell, and Ted Nugent. Reached number 112 on the Billboard charts and no certifications. So again, this was the first album in Ted's career that featured only Ted on lead vocals. And again, it's more of a guitar-oriented album released in 1988. Some notable musicians on here. So you got Dave Amato, rhythm guitar and backing vocals, Chuck Wright on bass, and Pat Torpy on drums. So getting into some of the highlights of this album, so it kicks off with a song called Can't Live With Them. Cool riff, again, throwback to the 70s. Pre-chorus is really good, chorus is really good. Great backing vocals in there, some call and response stuff going on. Great solo and great outro. Can't live with you, can't live without you. And some underlying soloing during the outro. So then the title cut, so if you can't lick them, lick them. Which, with a title like that, I think you would think of one type of song from Ted, and you get something completely different. And there's some cool music, great vibe in there, almost a Little Miss Dangerous feel to it, kind of the vibe of that song in here. Some cool fills during the chorus. Backing vocals sound like what Megadeth ended up using for Crush 'em about 10 years later on the Risk album. And then just a, an epic solo and cool underlying music and percussion during that. So, you know, again, you, you see the title of that track and you're thinking kind of one thing. And I think he, he, he totally took you down a different path, which I thought was very, very cool. Fun Lover closes out side one. Cool upbeat riff. And then you've got, you know, Ted yelling out, ride him cowboy. And verse delivery is, is pretty good chorus reminds me of kind of an Alice Cooper chorus during this same era. And then there's some cool guitar harmonies during the breakdown of that song. And then leading off side two, the song Spread Your Wings. Very cool, mellow song. And again, with, with Nugent on vocals, totally unexpected. Great guitar tone and bass in there. Chorus, Spread Your Wings, Fly With Me. Almost a Billy Idol feel to it with the delivery. Cool lead guitar melody during the outro as well. Just a really, really cool, unexpected song on this album. Separate the men from the boys, please. Cool riff. Lots of space in there. Verse is good. Chorus is just okay. Gang vocals on Separate and then Nugent only singing the men from the boys. Pre-chorus, there's kind of a underlying organ back there which is interesting and then and then I find it kind of interesting Fraley's Comet actually has a song called Separate on their second siding album which came out around this same time and again that's the the line is separate the men from the boys and it's like okay who uh, who copied who here song bite the hand again cat scratch fever 1988 version so cool riff but again, he's, uh, 
He's really reusing that riff yet again. Chorus is cool, bite the hand until it bleeds, baby. Backing vocals, great soloing under the chorus and during the outro. Cool song other than the, the obvious uh, nod to Cat Scratch Fever. And then the last track on here, that's the story of love. It's actually written by John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora, and it sounds like it. Very, very Bon Jovi-ish. Cool song, though, overall. Verse, call and response with the riff. Pre-chorus, very cool. Again, very Bon Jovi-ish. Call and response with the riff with that as well. And then, as you would expect, a very catchy chorus. So as I mentioned, Nugent was on all of the lead vocals on this album. And surprisingly, I liked most of them. Three kind of missed the mark for me. She Drives Me Crazy, Skin Tight, and then The Harder They Come, The Harder I Get. And the fact that Gene Simmons missed that song title during the 80s, he's got to be kicking himself. But anyway, those three songs don't do much for me but again he's like any other lead guitar player that's got a uh, a band you know kind of using his name you know he, he can sing some of the songs but he's got to have another lead singer just to you know have some variety represented on the album all right so i'm down to penetrator and little miss dangerous and i'm going with penetrator at number two so released January of 1984, produced by Ashley Howe and Doug Banker, charted at number 56, and again, no certifications. So all songs by Ted Nugent, except where noted, and I'll talk a little bit about that as I go through this. So notable musicians on here, so Brian Howe gets introduced as the lead vocalist, and again, he's really got a, uh, a Lou Graham feel, so there are some similarities to Foreigner during the 80s on this album. And then I also noticed that Peter Wolf was actually credited as percussion and sequencing on this record. So jumping in, so tied up in love. So Brian Howe on lead vocal. And this was actually written by Randy Kate, Cliff Magnus, and Ted Nugent. So this song kicks ass. Any song that starts off just with a guitar solo before the main riff, you know you're, you know you're in for a ride. So again, great, great riff, and again, very keyboard heavy in there, which is a little bit odd because this was only 1984, and I don't think the keyboard stuff, you know, really started to take hold until a little bit later in the 80s, so I find it interesting that he went that direction um, at this particular time. But again, Brian Howe sounds amazing on this song. You know, the verse, guitar fills throughout, which is just awesome. And the chorus, you know, that you've got me backing vocals and then tied up in love from Brian Howe is just fantastic. I had to mention the video. So, Nugent is um, portraying a minor in this video and for some reason he gets drugged by some young woman that looked like was bringing him water and kind of odd not sure where where that was going but in general can you say big ego so he is the only (laughs) person from the band that's even shown in the video So you've got him 
playing guitar at times, and then you've got him obviously playing the part of this minor. So there's some weird sound effects in the video. So at one point, Nugent gets tied up with ropes or cords by a bunch of scantily clad women, which makes sense for the, for the 80s, but anyway. Cheesy video, but a great, great song. Next up, Where Do You Draw the Line? So this was actually Brian Howe on lead vocals, and this song is credited to Brian Adams and Jim Valance. And actually, there's an outtake of this song out there. You can find it on YouTube for his album, Reckless. Which actually, I you know, kind of prefer that version because there aren't a lot of keyboards in that Brian Adams version. And unfortunately, there are in the Ted Nugent version. So, and again, they're just not really necessary, but I, again, I get it. It was starting to uh, go down that, that path. It's just a little bit too keyboard heavy for me. Next up, Knocking at Your Door. So again, Brian Howland, lead vocal, song written by Andy Frazier. At least it's not titled Knocking at Your Back Door. Killer, killer riff. Verse is kind of mellow. Cool melody. Pre-chorus is great. And then the chorus, fantastic backing vocals. Again, very similar to the backing vocals during Tied Up in Love. Uh, which is very, very cool. And again, a bunch of guitar fills in there. And again, <laughs> again, underlying keys. So just trying to commercialize it a little bit more. And then a cool cool breakdown section with some, some interesting sound effects going on back there. Then next up, Don't You Want My Love. Again, Brian Howe on lead vocal. Great riff. Again, more underlying keys that aren't necessary. Verse, great delivery. Chorus, don't you want my love? Don't you want it bad? Don't you want my love? It's the best thing you've ever had. Interesting. First chorus is just Brian Howe, and then second chorus, they bring in some backing vocals, which unfortunately sound a little bit cheesy. It just works better uh, just with Brian Howe on that chorus. And then the outro backing vocals are very, very good, and then there's some soloing going on as this song ends. Side two highlights, so Blame It on the Night, another Brian Howe lead vocal, written by Rick Blakemore, Dennis LaRue, and Ted Nugent. Very cool intro, keys, bass, guitar feedback in there, great riff, verse melody, chorus, loving you feels good, makes it feel so bad. Again, very, very cool song. And then Lean Mean Rock and Roll Machine, actually a Ted Nugent lead vocal here great riff cool lyrics about an upcoming rock and roll star great chorus backing vocals and a great scream before the solo and again another great breakdown in there so those were the highlights you know the songs that really didn't stand out to me so go down fighting thunder thighs no man's land and take me home so of the six songs where brian howe is on lead vocal i liked all of them except for one and then ted nugent was lead vocal on four songs and i was really only a fan of one of those that lean mean rock and roll machine and the other three didn't do a lot for me so now moving on to my number one album out of these four little miss dangerous released March 1986, produced by Peter Solly, Michael Verdick, Ted Nugent, and Doug Banker. 
and this charted at number 76 on the Billboard chart, and there are no certifications on here. So again, all songs by Nugent, except where I'm going to note as I go through these. And then notable musicians on here, so this is when he brought in Dave Amato, rhythm guitar, guitar synth, and lead vocals. So highlights, side one, high heels in motion, so Dave Amato on lead vocal. The immediate intro riff really sounds like Stay With Me from The Faces. Again, goes into a great riff, and the keys are kind of gone for the most part here. You don't have just that underlying keyboard like you did on the previous album, Penetrator. Verse, awesome delivery and riff, pre-chorus, cool. Again, some keyboard in there, but again, it's not in the forefront. You know, it's it's really in the background, which uh, so just, just adds a little bit to it. Chorus, high heels, high heels in motion. And on the second uh, second one, you got some delay in there on motion and some underlying keyboards during the chorus. But like I said, underlying, it's not prominent. Next up, the song Strangers, actually written by Bill Conti and Ted Nugent. Dave Amato on lead vocal. Great drum intro into a great riff. Chorus, Strangers, Lost in the Night. Delay in there, which I am a sucker for. So again, there there is some slick production in here, but for the most part, the keyboards are not as prominent. And then there's a cool breakdown in there as well. And then next up, the title cut, Little Miss Dangerous. And again, this track, along with another track on this album, were featured on episodes of Miami Vice. So great intro into a classic bass line. Lead guitar fills in there. Verse, just a great vibe, low register, Ted Nugent vocal. Call and response vocal on the riff, and then chorus, Little Miss Dangerous, Little Miss Dangerous Tonight. Just an awesome, awesome song. Next up, Savage Dancer, Dave Amato also on lead vocal. Another great bass line intro into a great riff. Great verse, chorus, she's a savage dancer. Again, delay on dancer. And then he sings Savage Dancer two times. Great underlying riff. Verse two, like a maniac, she's insane. Great delay on there and never looking back. A deadly game delay on there as well, which like I mentioned, I am a sucker for. So four of the five songs on side one are solid for me. And then side two, I actually like everything on side two. So when your body talks, Dave Amato on lead vocal, written by Ben Schultz and Eric Scott. Cool riff, but now you've got some prominent keys making an appearance, which again, just are not needed here. Chorus, I love how it feels when your body talks. I can't help but listen. Breakdown is really, really good, so cool song overall. And then My Little Red Book, lead vocals by Ted Nugent, written by Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Dialing a phone sound effect, intro, verse, into kind of a bouncy, very, very commercial song. Chorus, all I did was talk about you, hear your name, and I'd start to cry. There's just no getting over you. Again, great, great melody, but very popish. Almost reminds me of a monkey's song or a monkey's melody in one of their songs. Next up, Take Me Away, Dave Amato on lead vocal. Written by Dave Amato and Ted Nugent. Very cool intro, vocal and bluesy guitar riff in there. 
verse it kicks in chorus take me some delay on there take me away more delay great great stuff next up angry young man ted nugent lead vocal again the other song that uh, was featured in a episode of miami vice cool riff lots of space in there again reminds me of montrose added keys in the middle of the riff just to add keys i guess i'm not sure why those are in there verse is cool pre-chorus very melodic chorus gang vocals angry young man outro is just great a lot going on back there both vocally and musically and then the album closes out with painkiller so ted nugent lead vocal upbeat drums almost has a van halen feel to it verse pre-chorus you know getting singing in that low register and then the pre-chorus there's some great harmonizing in there chorus she's my painkiller painkiller she's running through my veins great breakdown harmonizing is awesome prior to the solo and then more soloing during the outro so again six dave amato lead vocals on here and i liked all of them and the ted nugent vocals there's four and i liked all of them but one so the one song is the song that closes outside one crazy ladies just again kind of upbeat kind of has a van halen uh, sound to it but just doesn't do anything for me and then to make it worse at the end you got nugent laughing and there's some dog noises or something going on at the end of that song and i just again not not sure where he was going with that so again my rankings out of these four albums number one little miss dangerous number two penetrator number three if you can't lick them lick them and number four nugent so again if you're not familiar with this era of ted nugent I'd take some time and, and give this stuff a listen. I mean, back, you know, that Nugent album from 82, so you've got Derek St. Holmes back, and, you know, trying to go for that 70s vibe. Penetrator, you know, is an introduction of Brian Howe before he moved on to Bad Company, but just a great vocalist and some great songs on there. You've got Little Miss Dangerous, which has got Dave Amato on lead vocals on a lot of those songs, and he does a fantastic job. And then even if you can't lick them, lick them. Again, you've just got Nugent on lead vocals in there, which initially, you know, when you think about that or read that, you might be turned off by it. But he does a good job, and he has got some he's got some different uh, sounding songs on there. So again, I would give all of these albums at least a listen and see what you think. So now onto the Slam Fest tip of the week. So both of these shows that I saw were midweek shows. So the East Lansing show was on a Wednesday and the Pine Knob show was on a Tuesday. So I mentioned for the Pine Knob show, I went with my friend Tom from work, who was the big Kiss fan, and he and I did things right. So again, he was driving in from uh, the Detroit area actually to work. He worked in Lansing here. And I know we left work early. I think he uh, followed me. We made our way to Pine Knob, and I think we ended up dropping his car uh, somewhere in a, a park and ride or something, and then just got into my car and went on to the venue. But we did some we did some serious pre gaming uh, before. It was it was an absolute blast and a, kind of an odd memory of that show. So again, this was. You know, obviously still, you know, CDs and, it, you know, we, we talked a little bit about Napster 
back on that ACDC slashes snake pit show and how we were making uh, CDs utilizing music match and all that type of stuff and uh, anyway had a ton of uh, CD mixes there and and drawing songs and just playing stuff so for those of you that have been listening to this podcast you know that during the pre-gaming you know generally don't like to listen to the band that we're going to see or any bands on the bill that we're going to see during the pre-gaming and one thing that generally never happens is you don't listen to the same song (laughs) multiple times and I remember this is kind of an odd memory but I remember listening to a song twice and I, I'm actually I think uh, um, mixing up two different shows so I can't remember which song it was for sure that we listened to twice but it was one of these two songs so it was either Crazy Nights by Loudness and again I can remember I think playing that song and he had forgotten about that song and hadn't heard it in a long time but then I think we also and again maybe this was another show that he and I went to but it might have been Medal of Honor by T.T. Quick that he also hadn't heard in a long time and ended up listening uh, to those songs twice. One of them at this show and probably another one at another show that I'm not, not remembering. But I'll tell you what, it doesn't happen often, but there are times that songs end up getting played twice because they are total jams. So with regards to the East Lansing show, I remember meeting my in-laws at their house and they're downstairs. They had a bar down there and I think we had a couple of cocktails before making our way over to the Breslin Center. And one thing that I haven't really talked about is what they thought of the show. And again, I think they <laughs> I think they were entertained at least, which is good and I, you know, I think uh, Part of it was, you know, they were experiencing something that that I love, and and so I think uh, I think they had a good time. So at that time, I believe Holly's dad's mom was not doing well. So if anything, this was an escape for them to to go out and <laughs> and be entertained and 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 possibly be distracted uh, from what was going on in their personal lives for at least a few hours and now to close out this episode with which side are you on and i got back into the kiss album randomizer for the kiss episodes so it can spit out one of their albums that was released at the time of these concerts and it spit out Kiss Unplugged. So Kiss Unplugged released March 12th of 1996, produced by Alex Coletti, reached number 15 on the Billboard charts, and is certified gold. And again, with these Which Side Are You On segments, I really just get into the performances and put side one up against side two and not really dive into anything further. So on some future KISS episode, I'd like to dive into this album and event a little bit more and talk about all the songs that they ended up performing during the recording of MTV Unplugged. 
how they came up with which songs would, would actually air on the episode of MTV Unplugged, which songs that they would actually include on the CD release, and then even dive in a little bit to the arrangements of the songs that they ended up including on the album. So a couple of initial thoughts on this album. So the MVP of this album is Bruce Kulik. All the way, his guitar playing, his preparation for this was unmatched by anybody else in the band. It was amazing to watch him pull some of this stuff off acoustically. And the other thing, and I'll mention it on a couple of songs specifically, but Gene's vocals were a little bit rough at times. So, you know, in the mid-90s, Paul's lead vocals were a couple steps above where Gene was vocally at the time. So let's get into side one. So it kicks off with Coming Home, and I will say this, this is by far the best version of this song. And that's not saying a ton, because I've already talked about Hotter Than Hell, and I've talked about the production and how I am not a fan of it at all, and I hardly ever go back and listen to that album. So this really lets this song shine, because otherwise the the studio version of this song, everything is just buried in there, and you, and you can't even make out all of the instruments in there. It's 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 rather frustrating. So. I think the only thing that's lacking is Bruce's lead work during the chorus. It's either drowned out in the mix or he didn't even do it. And here's what I'm talking about. And Paul, you know, yelling out the I'm coming home, baby. Eh, I don't know. I'm not, not a huge fan of some of the interjections from Paul and Gene during this. Again, this is a unplugged recording and not you're not playing in front of 20,000 people. So some of that stuff I, I, I don't think really fits in this setting. So moving on to track two, so Plaster Caster. So Paul's intro to this, so he says, you know this, no introduction needed. And I'm like, that's an introduction. So <laughs> shut up and just play the song. And at the end of the day, people don't know this song. The casual fans do not know this song. So overall, I, I think it's okay. I think what's lacking is the backing vocals in there. So, you know, plaster caster, plaster faster, you know, those those call and response during the song, they just completely ignore. And I'm not sure why that is. And again, so here's here's what I was talking about with Paul yelling out in the first song, but Gene yelling out Bruce prior to the guitar solo, not necessary, especially during this acoustic type setting. Next up, Going Blind, similar to Coming Home. This is the best version of this song, and it's primarily related to the production on Hotter Than Hell. 
chorus. They think great vocal harmonies from Gene, Paul, and Eric. They, they absolutely sound fantastic together. Next up, Do You Love Me? So the verse of this song, I, the guitar chords sound <laughs> off. Now, you know, almost as though it's out of tune. I, I don't know. I, I noticed that. Even, I think, when I went to the KISS convention in Detroit and they played this and I played it back on my recording, I thought it sounded odd, and sure enough, it sounds a little bit odd to me on this unplugged release. Chorus, great vocal harmonies again from Gene, Paul, and Eric. They just sound great together. The outro is amazing. Just musically, it sounds so, so good. Paul's interjections, again, not great, again, based on this setting. Domino, so, you know, what stands out to me is during the second verse, and you can hear the crowd cheering back there kind of loudly, and at first, without context, you'd be wondering, what, why is the crowd cheering? Well, the crowd is cheering because this is probably the fourth time they've played this song, during the recording because Gene kept fucking up the lyrics. And the lyrics are, granted, the lyrics are confusing, but I don't know. You know, edit that crowd noise out because without the context, it doesn't make any sense to the listener. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. And once again, Bruce Kulik's full name call out from Gene prior to the solo. I'm just kind of like, no, stop. But again, great backing vocal harmonies with Gene and Paul, which is very, very cool to see those guys singing together. Sure knows something, and you know I'll talk more about this when I dive into this album a little bit more and talk about the song selections and debate what should have been played and what shouldn't have been played and the arrangements. But I've got a tribute album called Dress to Kill that has a version of this song on it by Bobby Bandera and it is an acoustic version of it and it is awesome. So the pre-chorus, I still can feel the pain. I don't know why they do the backing vocals on feel the pain here because it's not like that on the studio version and would have preferred they left that off. Chorus, again, great vocal harmonies from Gene, Paul, and Eric once again. Solo is really, really good, but I guess I would... uh, Maybe advise against doing a pick slide on an acoustic guitar. Just, uh, just does, doesn't need to be there. And then great, great outro arrangement with Bruce's lead melody work as that song comes to a close. Very, very cool. And then A World Without Heroes. So, you know, Gene's vocal is a little bit rough as that song starts. I mean, it ends up being okay as the song continues on and then Paul's solo is great and again for those of you that saw kind of the bootleg of the original recording of that Paul kind of butchers that solo right at the right at the end and obviously they fixed that for this official release and then side one closes out with rock bottom again very very cool intro everybody knows that uh, that intro it's shortened um, for this for this version of the song and then you know again Paul says now it gets rough and I'm like really Paul you're unplugged how rough is this really gonna get 
And then on the CD, for some reason, it abruptly starts right after he says rough. I mean, there's <laughs> there's no space in there. I think that was a, a bad edit uh, of that song. It just, I don't know, it doesn't leave any, any space in there, which it, which it should have. It just sounds really, really odd. But I actually, I do remember hearing that song on the rock radio station here in Lansing, you know, a few months maybe after that album was released, which I thought was interesting because I thought the only single was Rock and Roll All Night. So then Side 2 kicks off with See You Tonight. Again, great song off of Gene's solo album. And Gene's lead vocal again starts off pretty, pretty rough. And I'm just like, you know what, take a drink of water before these songs start and you might end up with a better result. But again, great backing vocal harmonies with Gene and Paul in there. Very, very cool to see. And then Gene, Paul, and Erica all doing backing vocals in there as well, which is very, very cool. Then next up, I Still Love You. Now, you know, again, huge nod to... Paul, he he prepared, he worked his butt off to do this song justice. And again, I love, I love what he was able to do live. But when I look at this, I still, I still prefer the studio version of this song. And you can send all hate mail to slamfestpodcast at gmail.com. But again, great, great song. And the performance is very, very good love it next up every time i look at you so again they bring in a string section and they've got a piano in there which is very very cool not really sure why the crowd is cheering when he kind of starts that first chorus i I get it when the strings and the piano kick in and there's some cheers back there but i'm not sure why they are cheering specifically when he kicks into that initial chorus Paul and Eric's harmonies during that second pre-chorus and chorus are just awesome. Again, they they sound great together. And then Paul nails that woo-hoo as the solo is starting. So 2000 Man, again, I'm not going to get <laughs> too far into the song selections and, and the decisions that uh, were made on what they were going to do. But I will say it's an interesting song choice for the first song that the original four were going to play together uh, as they reunited. They chose a cover. One thing it does do is it does just showcase Peter and Ace you know, for the first uh, 70 seconds or so of the song, which is, which is interesting considering this is when they brought them on stage. And so I, I get that, and that makes sense to me. But, you know, just when it's those two playing, it just sounds like it could go off the rails at any moment. And I know people love that and, you know, that's rock and roll and all of that stuff. I don't like that. And it just it just felt like it was going to to go off the rails at any moment. Great harmony backing vocals from Paul and Gene in there. And then just Gene on the Oh Mommy, Proud of Your Son uh, sections of the song very very cool ace handles the soloing pretty well on an acoustic guitar which is good and then the outro sounds great just with the guitar strumming as he's saying i'm a 2000 man so again pretty cool overall but again just some some stuff in there that uh, 
um, I'm not a huge fan of. And then they get together and they do Beth as the original four, and this is awesome. Absolutely love the arrangement. And again, on the, the Sonic Boom tour and the Freedom to Rock tour, I think both of those was when they were doing this acoustically here about 10 years ago, and I thought that was a fantastic way to do it live and loved that arrangement of the song. The closest they did to doing this back in the day was that and there's that version on Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park uh, where Paul is, is shown playing and Peter is, is singing. Of course, you know, it gets kind of fucked up when Sam messes with the talisman. Gene's bass line is great during this. You know, the second chorus, Beth, what can I do? And Gene is playing that melody on there. Very, very cool. And I thought Ace came up with a great, great solo for that song and obviously composed it. Next up, Nothing to Lose. Not a fan of this song <laughs> in general. Again, subject matter aside, it's just not good. I just I don't understand everybody's love uh, for this song. I just, uh, I just don't like it at all. Cool to have all six of them on stage, and cool to give Eric Singer his first lead vocal on a Kiss album. You know, and I'm just not a fan of Peter's interjections during the chorus. I just, I just don't like it at all. Yeah, but it was, it was kind of interesting. He did say, "Sing it for the Catman," <laughs> a couple times in there. And uh, anyway, uh, not a, not a huge fan of that song. And then Rock and Roll All Night. Again, I get it. They have to do this song. It's their biggest hit. You know, Gene's on the first verse. Ace and Peter kind of share the second verse. Peter jacks up the lyrics and sings the second part of the first verse again. But instead of we'll let you in, he sings so let me in. Chorus sounds pretty good and full. And having both Bruce and Ace do solos uh, I thought was very, very cool. In my opinion, Bruce's solo was better than Ace's solo. And then I'm doing the Japanese version of this so I can throw on a 16th song and make it 8 versus 8. So Got to Choose was released on that album and I thought very, very cool verse, great vocal harmonies from Gene, Paul, and Eric again. Chorus, great vocal harmonies from Gene, Paul, and Eric again. I mean, they, they really worked hard on this and, and prepared uh, overall for it and I, I think... Uh, some of the songs really, really shine with their harmonies. So, you know, looking at this, I, you know, I like versions of the songs on, on both sides. And, you know, at the end of the day, I just, you know, when you've got I Still Love You every time I look at you with that string section in there, the arrangement of Beth. And you throw Got to Choose on there, and then a you know a, a song off of Gene's solo album where Paul and Gene sound great with their vocal harmonies. I, I think I've got to go with side two over side one, even though Coming Home, Going Blind, Sure Know Something, World Without Heroes, I think all came across very, very well. I just, I just think some of the arrangements and some of the performances on, on side two are better than side one. So I'm going with side two over side one of Kiss's MTV Unplugged release from 1996. Did any of you see shows on the later legs of the Kiss Farewell Tour in 2000? 
possibly shows without Ted Nugent on the bill? If so, when and where and what were your thoughts, memories, or stories from that show? What are your thoughts on Ted Nugent's discography in the 80s post-Screen Dream? How would you rank Nugent, Penetrator, Little Miss Dangerous, and if you can't lick them, lick them? And last but not least, what are your thoughts on Kiss's unplugged release from 1996, Side 1 or Side 2? Let us know your thoughts by emailing us at slamfestpodcast at gmail.com or request to join our private Facebook page at Slamfest Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Next!